All right, we are live. Welcome to another episode of Roasting Marshmallows. My name is Rolf Suit, and I am your host. Uh, even though the world around us is changing faster and faster, it proves challenging for companies and individuals to adapt to these changes. Uh, for these, change sometimes comes much slower and more painful than they would have hoped. Changing or adapting to change is not simple on any level. Mm -hmm. Often there is no right answer and responding requires trial and error, learning and unlearning. Uh, understanding that you don't have to push, prod, persuade, or punish people to create change in your organization. Our guest today, Esther Derby, offers change by attraction, an approach that is adaptive and responsive and engages people in learning, evolving, and owning the new way. She's the author of the book, Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change, Micro Shifts, Macro Results for Change by Attraction. In this book, she presents a set of seven heuristics, guides to problem solving that empower people to achieve outcomes within broad constraints using their personal ingenuity and creativity. Uh, you may also know Esther as a co-author of Agile Retrospectives, Making Good Teams Great. Welcome, uh, Esther. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. It's really a great summary of the book, better than the one I wrote. Oh, really? Because I better than my well, summary. Yeah, I'm gonna because I took a lot of the text from your like your website and yeah. from the book and yeah. some stuff. So uh, I recognize it. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, I'm joined today by uh, two of my uh, colleagues, Enhik and Panche. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Rolf. Yeah. So, Esther, your uh, your book, um, yeah. Why do we need another book about uh, yeah about changing? <laughs> why maybe? do we need yet another why book we, about why, change? Why do we need another one? Exactly. <laughs> another one. It's so hostile. Oh. No, well, um, I don't mean it in a bad way, but my Goodreads <laughs> list is just way too long already. Well, it's actually, I think, a very different book about change. Okay. Because a lot of the books about change treat change as something sort of stepwise. And like, you know, you have to go through these stages and if you go follow all the stages, things will work. Um, mm -hmm. And they're pretty directive and many of them include a whole section on how to overcome resistance. Um, yeah. So I think it's a very different book about change. You know, so so it's a, a different approach. It's much more complexity informed. It's much more um human centric um in, yeah. in terms of of really honoring and respecting the people who are being asked to change rather than just pushing them or prodding them or yeah and, and that is what you mean with the, yeah that is what you mean with the, by the change by attraction yeah Not, you, you can yeah, attract exactly. people to change and and how how would you do that to attract people to change because i the only thing i can imagine how how you would do it is by I don't know, painting a, a really nice picture, like, hey, this is how the world can be, but that is probably a bit too uh, too vague and maybe... Romantic. Uh, uh, well, well, that, also probably not really realistic in, in, in the approach, right? Well, that's actually a common approach. You know, you create a... I'm sorry, I have to turn something off here. It just made, sure. my computer made a noise and I don't want it to show up in the recording. Um, I think it's really common for people to say, oh, you have to paint this desirable vision and then pull people along with you towards this vision. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's that's um, actually a pretty common way people go about change as they try to create this wonderful future. Um, yeah. The problem with that is, is that change doesn't really start with the vision. It starts with where you are. Right. Right. You have yeah. to, you have to deal with the reality of where you are, where you currently are. Um, so when I think about, 
uh, creating change by attraction, sometimes mm-hmm. it is it is um, you know modeling something yourself and then seeing who shows up and is interested in it. And you yeah. can do that on the individual level, but you can also do it on uh, you know with a whole team or with a whole part of a company eventually. And you know, people will get interested in what what's going on over there, and they'll get curious, and then say, "Oh, they seem like they're having more fun," and yeah, and that that can attract people to change. Okay, the scarcity yeah, principle like can that. attract people to change too. But you were going to say something. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, 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 it's okay. Uh, I, because uh, what Rolf said, right? I'm working with this customer, and. Uh, well, it's a huge organization, and basically they were saying like, yeah, they see people on the top level. They have this beautiful vision, and they say, "What well, we need to do?" And we are here on the bottom of the organization, like, yeah, how do I do that? Like, mm-hmm. and then they get totally lost. So mm-hmm. I kind of tend to agree that I don't think the vision is strong enough to actually mm-hmm. help people to change. And I think there is a huge gap. It depends mm-hmm. how big the organization is of this very nice vision somewhere in the horizon, and actually the small steps you need to make to turn that concrete. Mm-hmm. So like, assuming that this is the organization, right? Like, what would be your suggestion to start? Because this is not enough, I think, yeah. just having this vision. Well, But how to bring that vision to life? I think in some ways it depends on what the vision is. Because a lot of the uh, corporate visions that I... Um, read about hear people talk about are about making more money Hmm. (laughs) or or being the best at you know something that you know world-class technology yeah i mean that doesn't that doesn't resonate with people so it, it, it people um people are attracted to something that has meaning to them that either you know, sort of intrinsically because of their values or because of the challenge of it. You know, people will will um, do incredible things in the face of certain sorts of challenges. Um, so that can attract people. You know, you think about um, in the 60s in the U.S., there was this emphasis on you know, getting somebody to the moon. And, you know, there wasn't this whole vision about we're going to have moon colonies and we're going to be, you know, we're going to make money from mining the moon. It was it was really about a challenge. Right. And that was enough to, you know, attract people and change people's thinking. Now, that wasn't quite an organizational change, but in terms of a vision, I think that that sort of challenge is interesting. Um, A friend of mine in South Africa was telling me about. a company that their challenge was to create affordable housing. That's and that's something people can can get behind wow. in terms of yep. okay. Yes. That's a that's a vision. Um and they had to change a lot of how they thought about housing and how they created housing and all sorts of things. But so I think you know, vision is making making the vision something that people can actually care about other than, oh, we're going to make more money for the shareholders. Yeah. Um yeah. And you know corporate bonuses. That's yeah. that's a starting point. But then you have to talk about what it means on the you know on a day to day level. You know what what how will we recognize that we're there? What will work life look like? What will it be like to work here? Right. Yeah, that's all. They're always easy to measure and to compare. That's why it goes back to the money problem. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, what, I think it is. So I think like you, you can know if you are making money or not. It's definitely <laughs> a easy way to, to know if you are going there. Yeah, but if everyone's <laughs> miserable, I don't think it's a very good uh, metric, is it? it well, no, you won't make it, money in the long yeah. term if people are really miserable. No. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, but, I'm actually not sure it's always easy to tell if you're making money. Because people... No. Um, I mean, on one level, you can say yes. You know, we are, are we are have more revenue than our expenses, um, but there are lots of things that happen in there that um, yeah. you know influence. You know, are you are you you know making as much money as you could? Are you spending a lot of money on things you don't need to be spending money on? So it's not it's not actually as simple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that is, and it's, and it's often just the snapshot of that moment in time because yeah. you don't know if the actions that have generated that revenue are setting the company for a future right. uh, sustainability exactly. and the future revenue. So that's uh, not, not always the best metric. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned is when uh, I think uh, we, uh, we spoke about, okay, that vision in the, uh, in the future, the, the nice um, goal to aim at, mm -hmm. and you said... Um, it doesn't start there. It starts in the present. Mm -hmm. I want to refer to a, a recent tweet of yours where you said something like, the past <laughs> is in the present. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I have an idea for myself what it means, but then uh, like, should we now, uh, if we cannot... If what we does it mean for you then? Bunch yeah, of. what does it mean for you? Um, we all have a baggage that we bring in our... In our um, present right now that we have to deal with. So if I want to mm -hmm. deal with whatever uh, change that we want to implement in an organization, uh, my past experiences might be preventing me from taking that step. So mm -hmm. I have to mm -hmm. find a way to deal with that. And then uh, if a leadership of an organization has an idea, a vision of how we need to move forward, they probably also need to pay attention to mm -hmm. the history of the people and um, how that influences the current state and uh, what that could, how could that be contributing factor to the implementation of their vision? Yeah, so that's certainly... That was my understanding. Is that really like... <laughs> that's, that's, that's certainly part of it, you know, because we each have our own sort of baggage and stuff we bring with us, our past history. But the organization may also have... Uh, you know, a history that influences the way they approach things. So their their last experience with change or the structures in the organization. So I mean, I I actually started. But wouldn't that be wouldn't that be also the because organizations don't have history like people in the organizations have history. Hmm. They have a history. You know. Oh, well, like... they do, but they are they it exists within the within the people that are yeah, part of the organization. Sure. If I suddenly sure. replace all the people in the organization, right? That's probably the past experience are not going to be there. Well, I'm, well, I'm not so I sure disagree. about that. Yeah, so, I disagree. I disagree. So, so do, you, do you all know who the founder of, of the companies you work for is? Are, were? Yeah, the one we do, yes. yeah. Yes. Ours, yes, yeah. but our customers sometimes yeah. not. Yeah. So, so do you have stories about that person? Do people tell stories about yeah. that Allah. person? Yeah. So, <laughs> so those is he still he or she still around? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But those stories about the early days influence what people think about what the company is about, what's possible, and those those stories often outlast the founder. 
You yes. know, almost every company I go into, people have stories about people who aren't there anymore. So they're yeah. they're still their yeah. presence is still there. Um, but the reason I become... the reason I started thinking about that so much is that I read a lot of medieval history. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and um, and m- most many histories are written from the standpoint of, oh, oh, here we are now. Let's kind of trace back how we got there. So there's a sort of retrospective coherence about it. And a lot of history of the Middle Ages looks at, um, you know, here are modern nation states. How did, you know, how did we get here? And they kind of find a little path. Yeah. Um, But this book I, I I read recently, I've actually read two of this historian's books. I hope he writes some more because I really like him and the way he approaches things. He says that history, development is not teleological. History is not teleological. So it, it does not go towards a particular function. It comes, it, it goes from. So if you, if you think about um, medieval Europe, which I think about a lot, who knows why I have this particular interest, but I do. Um, it's, it's the development of Europe, particularly in the Middle Ages, was highly influenced by structures left behind by the Roman Empire. Yeah. So the network of cities that Roman cities dramatically influenced the development. The network of Roman roads dramatically influenced the development in medieval Europe. Um, you know, there was the kind of um, river boundaries, um, the Danube, where you know that the fact that there those road systems didn't exist beyond those rivers dramatically influenced how things how things evolved. You know, it, it influenced trade, it influenced um, communication, all, right, you know, all sorts of mm-hmm. things. So, yep. so that's why I started thinking about um, that in terms of organizations, is because I. Was reading this mm-hmm. very, very interesting history of medieval well, Europe by well, Chris Wickham, I mean, uh, if you want to read it. It's quite quite, quite a different um, take on Europe. Okay. You're going to say something, Pancho? Well, just this brought me, and I think it's very much in light the way I perceived it, but it's like we, we often as cultural societies don't really appreciate the past, and it was like mm-hmm. everything that we are um privilege to at this point is is a result of efforts being done mm-hmm. hundreds and thousands of years mm-hmm. before us we're sort of mm-hmm. just standing on the shoulders of giants and, uh, and some it's not midgets. always visible how that is sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's also one of the rules in your book right like honor the past yep. present and people yeah. And uh, because, uh, yeah, at a lot of clients, we definitely hear the same stories where, you know, these legendary people, you know, mm-hmm. they, they bootstrapped this product and, you know, they, uh, yeah, they catapulted it into the app, uh, stratosphere. And then, of course, you know, the organization wants to change because it's probably, uh, you know, a bit outdated maybe, or uh, it, it doesn't adapt well to the future because, I don't know, maybe it doesn't scale anymore. And then, you know, we come in to help with, with, with that change. And, uh, if I understood correctly, you also get asked by by, by companies to help uh, facilitate change, mm-hmm. um, because what I think, what you see in a lot of companies is that they are always in a constant state of of changing and putting in new, I don't know, new policies or new uh, new visions, maybe or new whatever. 
And do you often encounter people just being tired of change and they just want stability for a, yeah, yeah, for for sure. a while? For sure. And, and how, would you, how would you deal with that in your position? Um, well, one thing to do is, is emphasize what's not changing. Right? right. And the other is to think about the timing of how you change things. So um, um, I often think about the the change model that Virginia Satir came up with, which says that, you know, there's a kind of status quo where things are going along, and then there's a yeah. foreign element that comes in, and then there's chaos, and then people begin to have a transforming idea of how to work with that situation, and they practice and integrate it, and eventually reach a new status quo. And the hope is always that the new status quo will be at a higher level of performance right. than the old, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it's lower, um, yeah. particularly in organizations. But in, in organizations that um, keep piling on changes, particularly if they're big ones, you know, they keep people mm -hmm. in chaos. Yeah. And that, that affects people's ability to work and it affects their emotional stability and their ability to think clearly and all, yeah. all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff. So think, like, thinking about that timing is important. Yeah. Because what we've, if, what we've if, had at, at, at the client, for example, is where, you know, we came in and we said like, you know, we have to do everything different and we just like, we changed everything. We changed code, mm -hmm. we changed team structures, which like it was super radical. And we also introduced like new concepts there. Mm -hmm. So they had to, you know, think different, like even new programming languages and everything. Mm -hmm. And then we reflected back after that, uh, after that customer. And we said like, well, maybe we did too much in one go. Like, do you have to like dose, dose the changes or because then you keep them in a state of chaos, maybe longer, or do you have to like, you know, do as much as you can in a short period of time? Uh, I think it depends. That's of course. Consultants always say that. It depends. <laughs> That's not the answer you were looking for. Well, I mean, uh, one of the rules is that there is no one. Uh, there is no one thing that works, right? So yeah. there isn't one right way. So uh, I'm, that's this. That's yeah. That's just so, how it is, I guess. So sometimes, if you can introduce tiny changes that don't cause a lot of disruption, you can keep doing tiny changes one after the yeah. other. You know, just as you know, being conscious of the direction of your movement, where where you where you're headed. Um, and there are times where some dramatic change is what's required. Yeah. You know, because, yeah. because if, if you have enough structures in place that, that are holding the current pattern, you know, sometimes you can loosen them up one by one by one, but sometimes you just have to make a dramatic move. I mean, I have a, a friend who um, became CEO of an organization that was, um, saying they did one thing but everything about their management was not that and yeah. and you know they weren't bad people but they were just invested in a different way of of managing a different way of thinking about business and and they you know were not willing to change and he pretty much replaced the whole management layer and that was Ooh, so that's a big bang yeah it was, that's it, a dramatic change yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and he felt that was what was necessary to yeah. uh, really shift the entire organization to be more aligned with what they said they valued. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, so like this example, right? Is uh, that you're using? And if if I go back to the think about honoring the past, mm -hmm. because the first time I heard that was uh, 
via my mom. <laughs> you know, she was like into this uh, home organizing things. And there is this show on Netflix, this Japanese lady who organized homes. <laughs> and she's always honoring the past before throwing things away. And the second time actually I came across was on your book. But then I wonder like, do you always have to do that? Let's say you have a crap management or some people here, you don't like it. They actually, they create a lot of harm. Do you have to honor that past? Do you think that there is a place that honoring the past is actually decremental for the people who are actually part of that past? Um, that's super interesting question. Um, uh, because honoring the past, I think, doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're um, lauding the past and you're saying it was wonderful. Um, but you kind of have to accept the reality of it and not, you know, paint it as a wonderful thing. I mean, uh, you know, my country yeah. has stuff that happened in the past that was dreadful. You know, that was immoral, that was inhumane. Um, yeah. That, you know, morally there is no, you cannot make a justification for it. Although people did at yeah. the time. And, and you know, trying to say, oh, you know, everything's always been wonderful. Um, makes it hard to actually move forward. Right. But I think right. sometimes that's how I experience with... Uh... Uh, let's say relatives who died mm -hmm. and they did had a past that was let's say something to be proud mm -hmm. of it but then until he was alive it was horrible after he died they honor him with being this wonderful thing like at least the cultural part <laughs> that i have about yeah. honoring the past yeah. is always making this the best picture of the worst you yeah. know you know remove all the worst and just make this good but that's i guess my cultural interpretation of yeah. honoring the past well Wouldn't i mean it'd be more the, like acknowledging the past than Yeah, well, should I, I have used a different word? I yeah, I don't know. Um, that's because that's super interesting. Because we have the, the, the some people in the U.S. have this thing about you know um, you don't speak ill of the dead, and yeah. uh, I think that's fairly common culturally. Um, yeah. But you know, there are people who have been in my life who are dead who you know I mean they weren't great people. I mean, it, it doesn't, yeah. you know, they were doing the best they could, but that was pretty a pretty flawed endeavor. Um, and, you know, and that's part of dealing with the reality of it. And, you know, pretending it didn't happen, it, it dishonors me, right? It says yeah. my reality yeah. isn't worth anything. That and, and I think that, you know, going back to your, Enrique, your example of uh, dead dead relatives, you know, it, it, you know, maybe they hurt someone horribly in the family, and if you suddenly are talking about them as oh, but they were so wonderful, that dishonors the person who they hurt because it doesn't acknowledge yeah, their reality. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't. And that's I hadn't, what I wanted in a company as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but what what I've seen often in companies happens. Let's say a company goes through some transition, or often goes through somebody gets fired mm -hmm. or there is a change in management, there is rarely a um, transparent and clear mm -hmm. um, reflection on that event. So mm -hmm. there is always a story that paints mm -hmm. like yeah. a nice picture with really carefully chosen words mm -hmm. while underlining it. But I mean, everybody 
people are not people are often smart enough to know what's, yeah. what happened and there's like a nice mm. painted picture so that you rarely see it happen also in, in companies in dealing with the past he decided mm. to spend more time true. with his family that's the euphemism that is used in politics here um <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and um I think there are some things that legally can't be talked about, right? Because of privacy concerns also, yeah. and yeah. because yeah. of li- you know defamation concerns and so forth. Um, but there are things you can talk about, and you can acknowledge uh, pain and problems yeah. that came up. But you're right; it often doesn't happen. I mean, can you yeah. think of a time yeah. where? Can you think of any time where, you know, some past event or some past person was that ended up leaving, was talked about in an honest way? No. Mm-mm. Nothing comes up. No, it's always the the, the polite version, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like a couple break up. We both decided. <laughs> well, sometimes that's true. Sometimes they both. Yeah, do. sometimes, but. <laughs> Once you go deeper, there is a different reason. Yeah. <laughs> um. you know, I, I have all, all things I've always admired people who would, after an unpleasant event, a failed project, or let's say something like that. In general, the, the default is okay, we bring a new one, let's go, without actually taking the time to reflect on that. I've always mm-hmm. admired actually people, and that has happened a couple of times, that actually take the time write like a or or talk about a proper like these are the events that led to this these mm-hmm. are the the things that we experienced this is what we could have done better this is what we should have done better and uh, um this is what we're going to try to do in the future and it's it, that is a proper way of honoring the past and mm-hmm. i think it ties a bit more into uh one of your other uh, <laughs> topics of, of speak, uh, retrospective. I was going to say, instance, it sounded on, like uh, a retrospective to me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, one of the rules uh, yeah. that you also, because maybe we can talk about the, the rest of, of, of the rules that are, are described in the book, even though I think it's uh, pretty interesting to talk, of course, about uh, the past. But, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that you also talk about is, is, is striving for congruence. Mm-hmm. Uh, or congruence. Uh, I, I'm not a native English speaker, so what is exactly um, what what exactly is congruence, mm. and how do you strive for it? Well, I use it in the sense that Virginia Satir uses it, which is that uh, in any interaction, we have to balance our own wants and needs and capabilities, those of the other people that we're dealing with, and the context that we share. Okay. And and it is not a state that I think we you know we we somehow achieve and we stay there forever it's i i um i think of it as being on a wobble board which do you guys know what a wobble board yeah so these things you yeah. have in a gym it's a balance challenge you know it's oh yeah it's like you know usually a disc with a hemisphere under it yeah. and you have to constantly be adjusting to maintain your balance if you just kind of stand rock still uh, very often people fall off them yeah um so when when you don't consider your own wants and needs, what happens? 
you know, you may say yes to work that you can't really take on without, you know, missing family commitments or, you know, working so overtime and getting sick. Um, Or you, you know, you may accept conditions that are not conducive to health. Um, And if you don't consider the other person, the other people involved, you may cause them harm. And if you ignore the context, you know, the purpose for the company, then you may be off doing something that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so basically consider the other person as persons. Yeah. And then the context, because you're both in a shared context. Right. So and yeah. the, the context may be, um, you know, we have a market window to meet, you know, to, to make sales for this year. And therefore, we need to, you know, really prioritize what we're working on, you know. Yeah. So. Then why do you think, because like when you say it, for me, it sounds very, how to say, yeah, human, mm-hmm. right? Like sounds very obvious. But then why do we go, because I agree with you, I don't think, I don't know if it, you didn't say that, but the reason why you put this in the book is because mostly you probably don't see that in companies, right? Sometimes this mm-hmm. is not there. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Why, why do we miss this, uh, yeah, treating other people like people? Oh, well, I think the past is in the present, right? Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, the, and then I, I go back to U.S. history, which, you know, the many of the colonies were founded on extracting wealth and extracting labor. So when you come from um, from that sort of history, extraction is part of it. So, so there's a, yeah. another really interesting history book I read called Accounting for Slavery which is about the origins of modern accounting practices which oh, really yeah which didn't it's i you know it's how, how how odd to read a book about the history of accounting i'm not interested in the history of accounting <laughs> particularly but i am interested in the history of you know how things how things got this way mm-hmm. and yeah. um the, the much of the modern accounting practices you know the their family tree is in slave plantations where they were extracting labor from enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And and so on some level way back there in the in the family tree, you know, there's this this idea of extracting labor. Yeah. Um for profit. And yeah. I you know, I that's my theory about why it is so Often that the attention to humans <laughs> is so yeah. often absent in companies because it's about it's about extracting labor for profit, right? And I'm yeah. not against making a profit. You know, I think I think making oh, a no, profit exactly. is, is wonderful. And there's actually a lot of research that says that um, when people are, you know, not totally stressed and they feel valued, they do better work. Yep. Surprising. Surprising, isn't it? (laughs) They're more creative. They're more collaborative. 
but they don't always do the work that you actually want them to do right now. <laughs> yes, and I guess that's the difference, I guess. And well, I think that's the difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on what your ideas are about all the work people should do right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, so there's this. I think another thing that I've seen in companies because that I think is in some ways related to that extractive mindset, which people don't. I don't think they hold it consciously, but you know, it's the echoes are there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I often see people feeling upset when teams look like they're having fun. So they're laughing oh, too mm. much. They're joking. Yeah, they're not working hard enough. <laughs> not enough sweat. Yeah, we need to work eight hours, eight hours a day. And, and the fact that people are, you know, joking and having fun is often a sign that they have a good camaraderie, which generally means that they have yeah. high trust and they have good communication and good collaboration. But the yeah. idea is that people should be visibly working hard. They should be miserable, or they're not working hard. Yeah, which is so bogus. Yeah. It's just yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, what 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 you see here as well a lot of the times is when you like leave like let's say you leave fifteen minutes before like the official end time of work, right? And then like everyone says like, Oh, you know, taking an early <laughs> afternoon off or you know, it's like man, come on, you know. <laughs> fifteen minutes. Yeah, they Yeah, counting butts in seats or cars in parking lots is really a foolish way to measure yeah. productivity. But it's common. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. easy to see. Yeah. And productivity so is I, I have really a, hard to measure. I, I have another uh, question related to change. Okay. Uh, so I joined this uh, organization who, to, well, try to help them figure out some things. And I met a few people that are highly motivated and they say, I want to change. I've been talking about this for years. Nothing goes forward and nobody's listening to me and they are super frustrated. What is your message to these people? Because sometimes I'm like, yeah, man, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask Esther. Maybe she does know. <laughs> uh, well, it's another it depends question. Uh, so it, it, people actually don't usually like to be told what to do. Um, and very often... People approach change as, well, I have to persuade people. I have to talk people into it. And that gets wearing over time. You know, if someone's trying to talk you into changing and you say, no, it doesn't fit for me, and they keep going. Um, So sometimes it's just just the way they've gone about it. Like they've been trying to persuade people rather than, you know, I'm just going to do it in the smallest way I can and see who's interested, trying to, like, attracting people. Um, Yeah. So that can be part of it. A part of it can be that there is so much in place holding the current pattern in place that there's no room for something new to emerge. Yeah. You know, it's just really locked down. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have I have seen situations where they just plain didn't like the person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it happens. Yeah, that can happen. You know, particularly yeah, if it's somebody who always has ideas about how other people should be doing things, but they're never willing to work on those themselves. I mean, at a certain point, people just yeah, they stop listening. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, also the organization might might not be ready to accept those changes. At absolutely. That point. And, right. And also, things might be changing 
con and probably things are constantly changing, except yeah. but yeah, probably but not weird. in the way that person wants them to change. Yeah. Because you said the organization, they don't have a past because people has past, but organization then is re not ready to take a change. But organization is people. Yeah. So I said organization and, and I, I use that as a term for people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so that, but those memories live on even if the people change. I mean, yeah. I, and these aren't, this isn't people. And I don't remember where I read this, but somewhere I read or heard about a place in, Eastern Europe, where at some point, I think during the Soviet period, there had been a fence, and there were deer herds that lived in that area, and they were separated because of this fence, and yep. the fence came down, but the herd still didn't cross the boundary. So we aren't deer, um, yeah. but I think those habits perpetuate unless you, you turn over everybody at the same time, like my friend yeah. did with his organization, or you, you change yeah. the structural stuff that holds it in place. You know, so you want collaboration. Um, you could fire everybody who is not collaborating and bring in all new people, but if you still have the same job descriptions and you still have the same reward system and you still assign individual work and blah, 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 mm. you're still not going to have collaboration. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, I also saw that one of the rules is, uh, is experiments. Uh, yeah. Change is limit disruption and allow mm -hmm. people to learn. And um, mm -hmm. this also... Um, really speaks to me because, yeah, I'm a software engineer by trade, basically, and um, I also like doing little experiments. And uh, mm -hmm. I know that you also started as a software engineer, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, I was a programmer. Yep. Yeah, I saw that you also had a dream of owning a bookstore, but, oh. uh, yeah. Uh, boy, <laughs> but, oof, I'm glad I but you went back. <laughs> yeah. But you went back to uh, software engineering. I did. Uh, so, yeah, how, how does your background as a software engineer help you to, um, yeah, to write this book and to become an expert in, in, in this field? This change management stuff. Well, I, you know, I, I started making little changes and things when I was a programmer. I mean, I just would notice something and see if I could make any kind of shift in, you know, yeah, posting things or right, organizing things a little differently. So, um, I think one of the things that I was good at as a programmer was I. And I wasn't always able to, like, initially at least consciously draw the links, but I, mm -hmm. I was really good at saying, oh, we're seeing this problem here. Here's, you know, here's the problem we're seeing, but it's caused by something way over here. Yeah. 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 Um, and sometimes it was just like, you know, an, this, like, intuitive thing, and it would take a while to trace back all the steps, but that's one of the things I was really good at. Um, and so I think that helped me in knowing that the problem that we're seeing is not always caused here. We may be yeah. able to, we yeah. may be needing to look some other place in the organization. Right. Um, and it's never a linear problem, I ask. No, seldom, seldom. Yeah. I will. I wouldn't say never, you... but seldom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. 
what a lot of people who are in uh, positions of uh, well, sometimes consultants internal or external who are trying to bring uh, up some, some change one of the probably more frustrating aspects of this work is that sometimes regardless of how much effort you put in it, it rarely seems to go anywhere mm. you just feel like uh we've been talking about this we're trying to bring people on and it takes forever or it, or, or it almost never goes as fast as you want to go well, that's true do you what is your advice to that well what do is you your take on that do you have a particular example that you can share uh not really that i do be a... <laughs> okay yeah let's hear it go man. ahead well of course i'm not going to discuss uh, discuss names but let's say this organization wants to basically become an engineering organization mm -hmm. and they are talking about uh but they don't have developers in their thing they have a bunch of people who do integrations so it becomes very hard and they want to do all things with like APIs. They want to do all the things with the buzzwords of the market, like CICD on engineering and everything. But then, of course, every time you talk about people are like, oh, quick story. And then you move on. And they are talking about like for years and years, but they don't have the, mm -hmm. let's say, the skills yet to actually uh, deliver on the promise. And then I guess the situation becomes what Punch is describing to me. Like, oh, my goodness, we are talking, we're talking and we're going nowhere. And then it becomes a little bit of like this. Uh, and I think you mentioned in one of your episodes of your podcast about like, that's what I noticed that I use this word sometimes. I face resistance, mm. but I don't think I'm facing resistance, but it just does this feeling that it feels like somebody is resisting, but it is not per se a resistance. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the example makes sense, Punch. Yeah, I think, I think what the... The question was probably mostly from experience from uh, you guys that you have uh, mm -hmm. seen in, in also in other companies when you've mm -hmm. been uh, coaches when you try to okay let's do this let's do this but it just doesn't move. Yeah, well, but I think I think you hit on it, which is you look at you look at is the organization ready, and you look at what's holding the current pattern in place, um, and and then maybe you look at who benefits from the current situation. Right. So, so mm. somebody's benefiting from the way things are now. And, you know, if they have enough power or influence, they might be kind of holding things. But like, you know, I mentioned the whole things about collaboration and the things that work against it, that there might be mm -hmm. some of those, you know, and they're different for different changes you might want to make. Yes. Um, yes, that's a good one. Yeah. And, and then if I rephrase that, because for example, like the way how you speak is very calm, right? Then, uh, do you yourself ever experience that you get so frustrated in a company, like that you actually start not speaking calm, like guys, this has to move on. <laughs> Have I ever done that? Um, I'm sure I've gotten frustrated. Yes. Yeah. But I want, I want to, um, I'll think, about, I'll think about that in my back of my brain, but yeah. um, I, I want I want to go back to the thing about the organization isn't ready, because uh, yep. that's uh, something I've been thinking about a lot. I just wrote somebody a note about it this morning, actually. Um, in education, there's this idea of the zone of proximal development, which says, you know, yep. people have all this potential, mm -hmm. yep. but 
you know, they can only do, here's what they can do now. You know, they have this little circle, and what they can do next is here. It's not way out here somewhere. So sometimes, um, you know, you have to... You have to get the organization ready to do some new skill. You look so you look at what can we what can we do next? What's the next best little thing? You know, maybe it's uh, not TDD. Maybe it's like just starting to write unit tests at all. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and what exactly. are the skills? Yeah, and I think it's uh, I think it's a valid point because it's uh, I guess if I compare it to a toddler, right? He's just start walking, and then I want to do him to run and do jumps. It's just not going to be possible. Is mm-hmm. there is a limitation on the mm-hmm. how to say the skills and where people are? And I think indeed sometimes when we look at change, we want to look at that vision somewhere. And then the yeah. question is, why not just do that? Why do we need to do all this stuff? Yeah. But I guess this also starts with the the conversation when you talked about your book that you say like uh, other books they have steps, but then there is some sort of steps as well or not for change. Well, um, I think this, the step that you need to take depends on what you have observed about the context. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like the heuristics, you know, the writing is inherently linear. So I had to like, you know, I had to put the chapters in some sort of order. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily imply that those things have to happen in that order. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Except, except I, I think starting with congruence is usually a good idea. But, okay. Yeah. You know. oh, yeah. Because without that, you cannot talk to people. Yeah. And if well, you and talk, you can't do your you best thinking. Yeah, you can't do your best thinking. Yeah. I. We don't have that much time left, and there was one topic that I didn't get to talk. We didn't get to talk. That I was quite curious about about your take on uh, retrospectives. We recorded um, an episode on our podcast a few weeks or maybe a couple of months ago, where we had quite a. It was an internal one. We had quite a debate on mm. retrospectives and the utility of retrospectives, and if people should at all do retrospectives because often they end up being useless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I think uh, one of our colleagues was actually really uh, passionate about it. He's he's not in, in this podcast, but yeah, well, the, the, yeah. The point more was that the retrospectives aren't the problem, but like planning them, like oh man, we're going to have a retrospective every other Friday, for example. And then he's yeah. like, why do I have to wait if I have a you know if there's something that I want to see improved, I'm just going to instantly you know, talk to the team about it and, uh, you know, sure. put an action point somewhere and let's do it. Why, why do we need a retrospective if we just have collaboration and I can just speak, speak up? I think that was the, like, if you really condense it to what, what the argument was, I think that that's, the, that's the point. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with them. If, if you see something obvious to improve, <laughs> just fix it now. You don't have to wait. Um, yeah. Uh, and sometimes there is a benefit to or, to stepping back and looking at a little broader period of time, right? So, oh, we yeah. thought that improvement was going to help yeah. a lot, but it actually made things worse. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, you know, we need to get a fuller picture. We need to hear from every single person. Um, so, yeah, I you know I agree with your colleague. If you see something. Just- <laughs> And I and I also agree. A lot of retrospectives don't accomplish anything, which is a shame. 
And, and, you know, that can be for a number of reasons. It can be because there's no learning time built in. You know, Mm -hmm. if people are under, you know, enormous deadline pressure and there's, you know, features, 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 you know, there's not time to think deeply about what you might want to do differently and learn any new skills. So then retrospectives can feel useless. Or if people are afraid they're going to be blamed, then people don't bring up real stuff. Mm -hmm. Or if the thinking is very superficial, like, oh, we're just going to make three columns and dot vote and that's it without any yeah. real discussion. Yeah. yeah. So I get that, uh, you know, a lot of people have experienced retrospectives that are ineffective. And they, I think you mentioned, someone said earlier, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily help people dream into something they haven't seen. You know, they, you know, yeah. they can't imagine if they haven't seen it. So if, if you've only seen crappy retrospectives and... You know, it makes yeah. sense that you would think they were not great. Right. After listening to some of your talks on this on, on the topic of retrospectives, I got the impression that one of your tips actually was to um, focus on a specific theme on the retrospective, not mm-hmm. necessarily on a period of time and make it really broad, but like on a specific aspect of the the work that the team has been and actually prepare that well in advance with mm-hmm. with data that will give insights so you can have actually a productive mm-hmm. productive conversation mm-hmm. and uh, that seems to be quite a useful uh, useful uh, advice I think yeah I mean if you don't have a focus either you spend a lot of time trying to figure out what to focus on or you're all over you know yeah. all over and then it's hard to have coherent action so you know I find that that's often helpful. Um, and there are times when just having a broad discussion uh, is is useful too, but in general, I think it helps to have a, a, an area you're going to focus on. Not that you've decided, you know, this is our outcome, but we're going to look at technical yeah. practices, or we're going to look at our interactions with uh, this other department, or you know, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, like a, and when you talk because. Mostly, for example, nowadays, retrospective is quite spread, I think, in the, at least in the development teams. But sometimes when you bring this idea to a little bit of like management or some other thing uh, at a higher level part of the organization, they look at this, at least my experience, a bit of like, I don't want to do that. Like, wh- wh- why shall we do this? Uh, do you experience the same thing? Or do you recommend these people should do retrospectives? Uh, yeah, I, I think managers should do retrospectives and leadership teams should do retrospectives. Because, you know, they need to look at the way they're working and look at what is effective and what isn't effective. And um, just like everybody else. Which yeah. is another, let's here, here we go, here's another, the past is in the present, you know. The origins of management, it yeah. was like, it was, these are the people who had education and the people who viewed themselves as smart as opposed to the workers who were uneducated and viewed as not smart. You know, so yeah. that yeah. that little legacy is with us too, saying like, oh, why would managers need to look at weird, yeah. you know, weird management material? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had uh, I had one final uh, question about uh, you know the, um, the 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 last rule basically the book that said uh, mm. use yourself yeah um, because you need to use your skills of empathy curiosity patience and observation mm-hmm. um, what if you are not curious or if you're not patient you're a <laughs> micromanager 
you know, and you just said like, man, you know, I just need these guys to get this stuff done. How do you motivate these, these, these people to start with themselves and really maybe change their mindset or their, their way of working? Well, maybe I'd do a retrospective with them and ask them how well their, their method <laughs> is right. working. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I might ask them but, but, if but they like to be them? told what to do. No. Uh, but but is it hard for them to because first they probably need to change themselves before they can be the catalyst of the change in the organization is is that a challenging thing well it is always easier to change yourself than someone else always <laughs> so yeah um, well <laughs> i i don't know i don't know <laughs> i don't know uh, you have more control yeah, yeah that's well, for sure you're in control yeah. of your own behavior it, that's for sure it takes some bravery to change yourself too right yeah. so i guess that's the part that i believe people think it's easier to change others because they yeah. just it's the, they don't have to look in themselves it's the uh, illusion of control and power yeah well the, i mean if you change <laughs> the way you can change someone else's behavior is by changing your own so you know i have a, i have a story for everything you know you probably know that about me it's good but um at, at one point in my life, I had um, not best decision I ever made, but I I rescued a feral Jack Russell Terrier. Mm. Now Jack Russell Terriers are like kind of crazy dogs to start with. You know, yeah, they're like super high. They're super smart, super high energy. Um, they need to have a job. So this dog was feral. He'd been living in a horse barn. Um, for a year and he was a mess and after the second time he bit me I called um, a, a very well known well respected animal behaviorist at the University of Minnesota and he came in and watched me and the dog and I thought he was going to tell me everything that was wrong with the dog and he said Miss Derby, you must stop enabling this dog's aggressive behavior. <laughs> and, yep. And it was really all about changing what I, the way I interacted with the dog. <laughs> and he was never a, a you know a cute cuddly dog, but he got to the point where he was you know you could live with him, and you know yep. I could put my hand in his food bowl and he. Just didn't seem to bother him, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was all through changing my behavior. So would all that be it. an advice for people who are being micromanaged to start biting their managers? Call Caesar Milan. I I wouldn't advocate that. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> So, All right. <laughs> there might be a way, yeah, that your manager well, it might can be a motivator, motivator to consider a change or something. Well, <laughs> or, you, or you could say, I understand it's, it's very important to you to know um, the status of my work. What do you need to know and when? And then maybe you mm. can have a negotiation about that or a discussion about that. Okay. Or find, right. it, find another yeah, manager. That sounds like a better a better approach. Yeah, biting, biting, yeah. Yeah, it's not recommended. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, that will uh, will about do it for this episode. Um, thank you very much, uh, Esther. I've uh, had a blast. Yeah, and, uh, me too. And, I could uh, talk yeah, the rest I... of the day with you guys. 
Yeah, the same here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been super fun. Yeah. yeah. So Let's, yeah, if anyone is interested in in Esther's books, then uh, I think they're all available on Amazon. We can <laughs> include a couple of links uh, in the episode here, and also to uh, Esther's website, and uh, of course to her Twitter profile. Um, I love so, Twitter. Yeah. Esther. Well, do you do you, you use Twitter, right? We yes, saw some I tweets. love Twitter. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. yeah nice. Um, and that's also where people can reach out to you if they have, uh, you know, any questions. Absolutely. All right. Then, uh, yeah, let's do that. So, yeah, I want to also thank uh, my other co-hosts, Ahik and Panche. Thank you guys, as always. And uh, yes. I want to thank the listener as well for tuning in to uh, this episode. Yeah. Uh, if you have any questions for us, you can uh, reach us on Twitter as well. That's uh, at 4Scouts. Or you can send us an email at uh, podcast at 4 Thank you. Thank you again. And bye-bye. <laughs>